Hi, and welcome back to Occupy Interview. This is the Occupy America Social Network, and we are back on the air. Uh, we had a domain hijack. Some of you may have had trouble finding us, but we're here, and obviously you found us, so you're here. And we also, this is episode 41. This is Occupy Coin for Counterinsurgency. Our guest is Michael. Uh, can you Can you introduce yourself, please, Mike? Sure. Uh, my name is Michael Gould-Wartowski. I was a day one occupier uh, in New York City um, and uh, ended up um, writing a whole book on the movement that uh, just came out this year um, called The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement, uh, documenting both uh, what was going on um, within the occupations and, and also uh, between uh, the occupations and and, um, and the state and the power players uh, that um, so brutally repressed them. Um, I, uh, I recently came out with a, a piece in uh, Tom Dispatch, which was uh, circulated widely republished in the nation and elsewhere, uh, called The New Age of Counterinsurgency Policing. And uh, I've been studying some of this stuff as a, a PhD candidate in sociology at New York University and also just as a, a, a rank file activist and photojournalist for some time, um, trying to figure out what was going on on the other side. What uh, the can you can you give us a real brief look at counterinsurgency 101? What do what do people need to know about counterinsurgency? So um, counterinsurgency emerged as a strategy for uh, control and containment of um, what were seen as enemy forces um, in uh, foreign combat zones in the 1960s, as we know, um, and uh, has has really. Um, experienced a, a revival of sorts, a, a renaissance uh, since 9-11, um, has been deployed in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other conflict zones around the world in the so-called global war on terror. Um, more recently, we've seen uh, counterinsurgency uh, understood as a struggle for control over uh, contested uh, political space, political territory. Um, uh, we see this counterinsurgency strategy uh, imported uh, back to the homeland, back to uh, sort of domestic uh, uses and uh, so so the counterinsurgency framework uh, depends on uh, the establishment consolidation um, of control over um, a population and over a given territory uh, through both uh, military means um, that is uh, security forces um, in, in the case of uh, domestic protests political means uh, and uh, economic means and then the base of this as understood by uh, by Kilcullen is is information control and uh, we can get into that in a second. That would be great. We've really been trying to find some more information on that, and it would. Uh, we one of our guests, uh, one of our earlier shows was with Doug Valentine, a historian. He wrote uh, the book on the Phoenix program during Vietnam, and was uh, was was working with our audience, trying to give us a basic understanding of. The structure of homeland security is actually mirroring the Phoenix program. Um, are, is, did, did you have it? Could, could you kind of uh, elaborate? Uh, what are you seeing on that? Yeah, so um, I, I think that a lot of the uh, if we're if we're speaking specifically about um, the the information control um, yes. that's uh, that's going on. So on the one hand, uh, this looks like um, the control of of information uh, flowing to law enforcement. Um, so so that's that's one dimension of it, um, and and flowing to these paramilitarized militarized forces, um, <clears throat> and uh, that takes the form increasingly of um, an integrated uh, series of platforms that involve both the public and the private sector. Um, and uh, one example of this, uh, the domain awareness system. Uh, which uh, is a, a uh, program that draws on many, many, many data streams um, across New York City, for example, um, that was developed by Microsoft in partnership with the NYPD and federal intelligence agencies uh, to aggregate and analyze um, these uh, these data streams, to analyze information constantly in real time drawn from uh, tens of thousands of, um, of sources um, from uh, criminal history databases and closed-circuit television cameras, license plate readers, to uh, sort of open source intelligence, as they call it, uh, that is uh, information gleaned from social media and from people's everyday communications. Um, 
so uh, that's one dimension of it is the, the flow of, of information um, to them. Another is controlling the flow of information to us, uh, the, the information that we're getting. Um, and so um, it's not just about the intelligence gathering, not just about the, uh, the, the sort of uh, predictive policing, um, but, but it's also about um, trying, to, uh, trying to control um, what, what data we're getting about what they're doing. And a lot of this has to do with um, uh, securing um, cybersecurity. It has to do with, um, Kill Cullen talks about, um, media ops and information ops. There, there are stories that are planted. There, there are people who are working in, um, in media who are also working for intelligence. Uh, the Associated Press recently exposed this. There are FBI agents posing as Associated Press. Um, there's, uh, there's also um, efforts to counteract uh, the, the motivations and uh, ideology of, uh, of the people on the ground who are, who are trying to protest this um, this homeland security state and, and uh, um, on other issues like police accountability. Um, and they, uh, they involve um, basically constant, um, constant uh, flow of funding and, and of, uh, of personnel um, into the movement itself. So you have lots of uh, people embedded within the movements who are, are actually uh, uh, working for intelligence agencies at the same time spreading misinformation, um, spreading uh, sort of questionable uh, data about what's going on, um, and uh, and then part of this too is to to marginalize um, the protesters, to to deny them sanctuary, to deny them sources of support uh, from the larger population, um, and so this will will go into uh, you know we'll, we'll see this in in places like Baltimore, um, in places like Ferguson, uh, they will attempt to uh, to associate uh, dissidents with uh, domestic terrorism. They will associate. Um, dissidents with, uh, with uh, violent activity, and, and they will try to, to split the allies that these uh, movements have um, and to divide and conquer. Uh, we, in, in the show that we did with uh, uh, Doug Valentine, um, he, was, uh, he had a question for you, uh, actually two questions. Do you see a difference here between the way uh, uh, what you'll hear the term counterinsurgency and you hear the term counter-terror. Uh, is there, are you picking up any kind of a, what's the difference between the two? Well, of course, um, there's a kind of slippery slope and a spectrum, um, but uh, it has to do with the justification that um, the powers that be give for these kinds of practices, I think, more than um, uh, any kind of fundamental difference in, in, in what they're actually doing. Um, I, I think that... Um, you know, counterterrorism campaigns traditionally uh, do employ counterinsurgency measures as as a piece of, of them, um, and we saw both counterterrorism and counterinsurgency in effect in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, in the Horn of Africa, and um, you can even go back to Vietnam, of course, in Latin America. Um, so there's a kind of um, there's a kind of dual face of of, um, of this kind of security strategy. Um, and uh, when, when it's justified in terms of uh, uh, preventing uh, sort of uh, actual terror attacks, um, as it has been since 9-11, they call it counterterrorism. When it's justified in terms of securing control over a territory that may not belong to you, as, as we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they'll call it counterinsurgency. I guess kind of an elaboration of that question, too. Doug wanted to know, do you see any kind of a, a difference between the way it the CIA handles an operation and the way the military handles an operation and the way the DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, handles a counterinsurgency program? Uh, certainly, certainly. I think um, the military is actually um, certainly best, uh, best uh, trained and has the most uh, experience in um, sort of above-ground operations of this nature. Um, so they have to, uh, they have to follow... Uh, very clear protocols. Uh, they have to answer uh, for their actions at some level. There's a chain of command, very clear chain of command, and um, of course they're subject to uh, to all the unpredictability and uncertainty that arises in um, in uh, battlefields. Um, and of course the military tactics have not been imported uh, to to uh, law enforcement agencies here, but but there's still a kind of um, there are military protocols that are followed. Um, <clears throat> With the DHS and, and CIA, it's much more of a new frontier in terms of what they've been up to. 
Um, and I think that uh, there's there's much less uh, they they see much less need to answer uh, to to the public um, about their actions. There's there's much less transparency around uh, those activities. And um, I mean, much of what the CIA has done, of course, we don't even know the full extent of of that. Um, and it's only due to uh, to some intrepid journalism and and uh, some leaks uh, that we we have any idea of, of of what they've been up to since 9/11. Of course, the A2 have been uh, deployed for domestic uh, counterinsurgency, as we saw um, some CIA officers embedded with uh, the New York Police Department's uh, demographics unit um, used against uh, Muslim and Arab Americans uh, here in New York City. So um, that's it's, the, the CIA has definitely expanded the scope of its mission. Um, and the DHS, of course, is a new a new creature, um, one that we've we've only had since you know in the 14 years since 9/11. Um, and DHS is a is a really vast infrastructure of um, and it's hard to, to talk uh, in generalities about them because they it's it's just really such a um, a world unto itself. But they have um, they are they are actively engaged in. Um, sort of applying this domestically. So they're the ones who are, I think, thinking about um, ways to bring counterinsurgency home, probably the most active in that endeavor right now. Did, uh, have you picked up any kind of a... There was a, there was a time when counterinsurgency implied warfare. And That's right. here in the continental United States, in Ferguson, in Baltimore, in any of the cities... Uh, across the country that's having this going on. We are not at war. I never declared war on my government. Why did my government declare war on me? <laughs> Have you picked up any kind of what's going on here? That's right. So this was the um, this is the kind of slippery slope I was talking about between uh, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. Um, when, when the U.S. government declared the global war on terror um, in 2002, uh, that was... It was a signal, and it was also um, kind of the green light for for this to to, to really get um, global, and, and that includes the United States. So um, they see the the battlefield everywhere. They see the war zone. Uh, if, if if the streets of Baltimore and the streets of Ferguson looked like a war zone, that was no coincidence. Um, the uh, you look at um, agencies within um, the Homeland Security State here, like the DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. They regularly issue um, uh, communications to to other um, other agencies around the country, uh, saying, "Well, look out! Look out for 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 this! Um, look out for civil disobedience! Look out for civil unrest!" And they associated in some cases with uh, terrorism overseas. There was a, a memo that came out around the time of the Ferguson protest that associated the Ferguson protesters with ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. So um, they they see this as a kind of spectrum. A force uh, that can be deployed anywhere at any time uh, against almost anyone, um, and they do see it as, as uh, of a piece with the larger strategies they're pursuing um, in what they see as a global war that you know is also waged on our own shores. Now we're about uh, 14 minutes into the show. Uh, what uh, there, there were uh, reports coming out, and this will kind of begin to get into our next segment here in a second, but I just wanted to kind of paint a picture. You've been following what's going on in Baltimore, and it, it looked like uh, from the people who were actually there at the time that it was almost kind of like a setup on a bunch of high school kids. Uh, they shut down the transport. Um, they came in with a tank, an armored car, and a SWAT team and riot gear. And they taunted kids, ended up throwing rocks at the kids. The kids were throwing rocks at them. Uh, comment came out, was looked like Gaza, USA. Um, That's right. What, what, what do you see there? Can you kind of elaborate and give people a better idea of, uh, looked like they were just trying to, in, the cops were trying to incite a riot was what it looked like. That's right, and it's, um, it is actually a traditional strategy uh, for law enforcement. Uh, we've had um, those uh, officers known as agent provocateurs, of course, for over 100 years in this country, um, you know, who would go in and, um, and uh, you know, get things, uh, get things going, as it were, and, and, and get people riled up, uh, start, you know, the, uh, the, um, start taking violent action that would then justify 
um, a counter-reaction, which was actually planned um, all along. So what's presented as a reaction to uh, violent protests is often part of a preemptive strategy to preempt nonviolent protests. Um, as I argued in a piece uh, for the Washington Post uh, two weeks ago. But uh, in, in Baltimore, what you saw was um, you, you saw the Baltimore Police Department um, first engaging in uh, state-of-the-art surveillance uh, of, uh, of, of people's Twitter feeds and their social media streams. Um, and they, they learned that this um, group of high school students uh, wanted to, to, to protest uh, the, uh, the case, you know, the, the killing of Freddie Gray um, with a, a high school walkout and a march to the Mandaman Mall. And uh, the BPD, instead of, uh, you know, preparing uh, for peaceful protests, they, they armed themselves for war. They uh, suited up in full riot gear. Uh, they had, um, had military-style weapons at the ready, uh, military-grade uh, weaponry and, and military-style tactics. Um, and they faced off with these students, refusing to allow them, excuse me, <clears throat> refusing to allow them to go home, um, denying them uh, avenues of exit, uh, denying them uh, the ability to disperse. And of course, you know, given that uh, scenario, it's it's, it's almost um, inevitable uh, what what followed. Um, and they came at the the, uh, the students with with assault rifles, uh, shotguns, with lead pellets, uh, barricade projectiles, military style smoke grenades, all of the the things that you are uh, more accustomed to seeing, um, you know, on, on, in the streets of Baghdad. Of course, were were seen in the streets of Baltimore. Um, and uh, this this is a general uh, tendency, I think, with um, with empires, is, is that uh, the wars always do come home. <laughs> well, the wars come home. It's uh, it turns your stomach to watch the news every night, and and to a degree, that's uh, we're we're 17 minutes into the show, and it would be a really good time to kind of take a look at. Here's a guy who may have given the blueprint for all of the things that are going on right now, for the strategy picture anyway. Um, there's a foreign affairs magazine. The former ambassador to Iraq uh, wrote a piece that's basically saying counterinsurgency is doomed to failure. It's always failed. Um, and yet we've brought it back home to Baltimore. Um, that's right. Could you, uh, could you give us a little picture of... Of, of a gentleman named uh, Lieutenant, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel David Kilcullen and his three pillars, and that's built on information control. We've kind of begun to touch on that, and I think we just gave a pretty good learning moment for how it works. Can you kind of give us an in-depth picture? Sure, sure. So um, Kilcullen, Dr. Kilcullen, um, elaborated the strategy at the uh, U.S. Government Counterinsurgency Conference um, in 2006. <laughs> and um, there was um, there some questions at the time as to the, the effectiveness of, uh, you know, the, the strategies that were working, uh, that they were working to implement in Iraq, um, the strategies in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, this was a, a kind of a moment when uh, counterinsurgency really came back to the fore um, as, a, as an answer, as they saw it, as an answer to uh, to the question, well, how do you actually uh, secure um, you know this this uh, this territory that you know may or may not be uh, yours? Um, and I think uh, <laughs> in, in the case of uh, of of Iraq, it was very clear. In the case of of some of our inner cities, there's there's also a sense that um, that you know these are occupying forces. So I think that this counterinsurgency framework. Um, you know, again, sort of came out of uh, the military's experience overseas, um, but then they found it very useful at home. So those pillars uh, that you're talking about, it, it's, um, it's a, very, a visual model that, um, that he presents, Kilcullen. Um, it's uh, modeled uh, as, a, as a, a base, three pillars and a roof. Uh, the base is information, uh, and uh, that's the information control I was talking about, um, and also, also the, the messages that are sent uh, with counterinsurgency actions to the population, um, and then the uh, the food pillars, uh, security, uh, political control, and economic control, and uh, the roof is, is the, the the outcome of of control over all of those dimensions, um, the establishment, consolidation, and transfer of control from an insurgent um, part of the population uh, to uh, to the state that is uh, seeking uh, to control them. So the security pillar. 
um, is is the one that um, that my article was was dealing most directly with, um, and that goes everything from um, from the military um, and paramilitary forces uh, that might be in play down to uh, police uh, who who then receive uh, a lot of the, the the tactical and strategic orientations of the military um, in this context, and then um, you have public safety officers, p- private security um, sector, and um, and uh, what's called population security. Um, so you have that that pillar of control um, is is the, the the one that we traditionally associate with counterinsurgency, but it's not the only one. There's supposed to be a balance, right, between um, uh, to give you the, both the, 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 the efficiency, the effectiveness of, uh, of your operations and also a uh, degree of legitimacy, um, which is, is hard to come by in, in contested uh, <laughs> battle zones, right, uh, where you're occupying a foreign country. So, um, so to get this legitimacy, you also need to combine your security uh, forces and your security activities with, um, with political and economic efforts. And so this looks, uh, this looks like uh, building... Um, uh, sort of agencies of government that are uh, subservient, that are, are willing to do the bidding of those directly above them and, and those directly above them willing to do the bidding of those above them, uh, answering to um, the, the authority that's claiming control over the territory. Um, and, you know, that can be a, a naughty problem when you're, uh, you're, you're faced with um, uh, an occupied uh, country. Um, of course, it's a little bit easier to pull off uh, when you know, it's, it's uh, within your own borders and you're able to, um, to, to buy off politicians, you're able to, uh, to depend upon the criminal justice system to, uh, to fall in line, you're, you're able to depend on police officers and, um, and, uh, and intelligence um, agencies to back you up if the political pillar falls, right? But um, that, is, that is a key element and, and you know, it's one that, um, that they keep returning to to reestablish legitimacy is um, just to... to to say that, all right, this is lawful authority, uh, you better obey it. Um, and then there's the economic uh, pillar, which is um, everything from uh, resource uh, distribution to, to, to those who might be um, uh, sympathetic to, to insurgents or sympathetic to the rebels, um, humanitarian assistance, development assistance, um, and the management of, of resource and infrastructure. This is really important, actually. Um, in, uh, in the years since uh, 9-11, we've seen... Um, a real nexus of, of the private and public sector um, around the issue of security. So what's called critical infrastructure by the Department of Homeland Security has special counsels uh, that are designated um, and given the power to, to sort of manage. Um, and critical infrastructure, we're talking about not just, uh, you know, what you, what you might assume like power plants and, and, you know, things that people actually need. Uh, they also mean to, uh, they also take it to mean banks. They take it to mean, uh, large corporations. So uh, the uh, the management of critical infrastructure is also a key piece of uh, of the counterinsurgency strategy um, because those have to be defended at all costs from the threat of disruption, even if the, the disruption is coming from uh, nonviolent protesters, as we saw during Occupy. Okay, so we're 23 minutes into the show, and that those three pillars that you've just described. Uh, when it's operationally used overseas, like Iraq, we hear the uh, the people in charge of implementing this plan, uh, simplifying it down to uh, clear, hold, and build. Uh, does that kind of fit with those three pillars, or are they talking about something else entirely? Um, so that that fits it fits with the three pillars. The, the three pillars are, of course, one way of conceptualizing it that has become um, quite influential. Right. Um, in recent years, but clear, hold, and build, of course, um, has a longer lineage. Uh, was de- developed by the United States Army. Um, so uh, the three elements being civil, military operations, combat operations, and information warfare. Um, <clears throat> so you're talking about some of the same kinds of um, operational priorities, but um, you- you're talking about um, sort of something that was designed specifically. Uh, to uh, to deal with a guerrilla force, of course, that's not what we're dealing with in this country. So they've had to adapt it somewhat uh, to uh, to domestic uses. And again, that that kind of goes back to the question of how do we see some differences when this is applied as a CIA operation like Phoenix Program, that's or right. military or Department of Homeland Security? There are certain differences we're going to see. 
Uh, but there's a lot of similarities, too, because it's when it's all said and done, it comes back to an occupation, an army of occupation. And it, it was interesting yeah. to see how many people were observing that this felt to them like occupied territory. Uh, some, right. of the, some of the tweets that were coming out were talking about they couldn't believe this was in their backyard, I guess, after watching it in Ferguson and watching it all across the country. It does have a strange feeling when it's, okay, now it's here. Um, did uh, I guess that's kind of where we're needing to get to from here because basically there's a guy named Sun Xu, and mm -hmm. I may be mispronouncing that because I'm bad about that. Not uh, about right. But he talks about uh, if you can if you can defeat your opposition's plan, then you will win the battle without ever taking casualties. So let's okay. go back to the plan again. We can see the three pillars, and the pillars are resting on a foundation of information control. And that would appear to be how to defeat the plan. Uh, they have to control that information. And in okay. the age of Twitter, it uh, doesn't look like they're doing that well, uh, but that does seem to explain a lot of the strange things we're seeing, like um, we're seeing tweets of them going into churches, uh, Ferguson, which would be okay. sanctuary, I guess. And you can actually mm -hmm. see the people tweeting from from the areas about saying everything short of sanctuary, safe house. Um, yeah. You can see the, uh, the attack on the media begins to make more sense. So let's, let's, uh, let's zoom in on the microscope here. And there's a, there'll be a picture of, uh, that we're talking about. But now we're looking at the very base where those pillars and the roof are sitting on. And there's, uh, there's six things there. The first one is intelligence. Um, can, you, can you give us a... How does this apply to people having an occupation used on them in Baltimore? What's going on right. with intelligence? So, um, so they, have, uh, they have all kinds of means of gathering... Um, intelligence on the population, um, the, right. the, the target, the target population uh, being the, the the poor black population of Baltimore in this case. Um, but they have um, everything from uh, human intelligence that is people embedded among the protesters. Uh, we, we saw this to great effect, of course, um, uh, for many years. Um, and uh, they also have um, signals intelligence uh, they can gather through. Uh, uh, such uh, newfangled uh, devices as the, the Stingray or Hailstorm technology, as it's known, uh, which conducts wireless surveillance of enemy communication, allows them to uh, jam cell phone signals, uh, to force cell phones to connect to it, uh, and to collect mobile data without people's knowledge. Um, and they've been using this. This is specifically something that was deployed in Baltimore. Um, they also have open source intelligence, as I was talking about before, and, and this... Um, so we think about social media as, as um, you know, something that, that we can use um, to, to, to sort of uh, fight back, right, in this, this information war. But, of course, it's also a tool that um, is, can be deployed uh, by, by law enforcement for their own purposes. Uh, so in Baltimore, you saw uh, real-time tracking of, of uh, the protest events. You saw pre attempts to preempt the protest events by... Um, drawing on social media like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube uh, to, to sort of paint a picture for them of, um, you know, gather intelligence for them about where the next protest was going to be, where the next crowd was going to gather. Um, and this is the new frontier. This is predictive policing uh, or predpol, as it's known. Um, and uh, this has a lot to do with uh, counterinsurgency coming to the police. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's intended to, to, to basically predict where and when uh, crimes or, or, let's say, uh, protests or riots are going to happen before they happen, and who would be most likely culprit uh, to participate, and then to send uh, to, to to basically have a surge capacity where you can send in um, forces to 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 those targets and, and to to stop them before they even uh, happen. So that that kind of uh, information control uh, through intelligence gathering, through uh, sort of predictive. Um, Policing is, is, is the new frontier um, when we're talking about that information control base there. Um, and that gets into information ops as well. Yeah, that's the other interesting point of all this is it does not seem to be something that's a simple little picture in a schematic that 
it's not just intelligence. It's how does the intelligence apply to the information operation, or That's how does right. that imply on the media op? And again, that goes back to the whole concept of Department of Homeland Security fusion, doesn't it? It sure does. Um, so a lot of these fusion centers have been used to this effect to um, to create a kind of unity of command, but also unity of effort, um, where intelligence can feed into information ops and media ops, and can can then uh, be parlayed into uh, actionable um, information for them, and of course, um, demobilizing information uh, information that um, is denied to us. Uh, so the uh, the information ops uh, can take many forms uh, from sort of electronic warfare. Um, uh, you know, when I was talking about the Stingray Hailstorm technology is a form of, uh, I would say, of psychological warfare, of electronic warfare. Um, deception, um, sort of operations to disrupt, disruption of, um, of, uh, of, of political um, communications on, on the part of protesters, um, and, uh, and the corruption of the decisions that the protesters take through um, through this uh, this counterintelligence counterinformation campaign, um, because you can't you can't make informed decisions about what to do or how to protest nonviolently if uh, of course if you have uh, imperfect information. So um, that plays into into all all six of those uh, pieces of the information control regime. If would this would this apply to uh, back to where the kids? Uh, had rocks thrown at them by the by the riot police, the SWAT team. Um, were they trying to? Was there an information operation? Probably. Uh, I don't want to get into too much speculation because we'll right, know right. sooner or later. Uh, that's right. That's the good part of this. It'll all show up in discovery. That's um, right. That's right. But uh, is that a form of information op when you put out a? Uh, there's going to be an attack by a purge which is some TV show, I guess. That's right. Um, and, and have this complete story pre-made up and the pieces in place and the tank and the armor. and uh, it, it would. Is, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that an example of an information operation? or of, of um, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly um, the product of an information operation. I don't know okay. if... if the, so leading up to that, of course, uh, we had... Um, we had operations already uh, underway by the Baltimore Police Department to neutralize these protests um, from from the Saturday before, right? Um, as as to whether the purge was something that um, came from high school students um, sort of acting a fool or just uh, from um, from uh, the classic information ops handbook is is sort of uh, still a matter of speculation. Um, yeah, nobody actually, seems to be stepping up uh, to claim where that came from, which is another pretty right. good indication of usually a false flag. And I guess it that, certainly could that be. be another type. Be. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Media ops. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So once again, this is like another way of looking at the same thing, but then the media operation again would be, I guess, if you had reporters with cameras in place, to show the pictures of the kids throwing rocks, and this That's is right. a this is a theoretical. This isn't right. what happened in Baltimore because we still don't have all the data in, which That's would right. be an information op. <laughs> <laughs> of our own, Example, yeah. I guess. Uh, yeah. Media op. Can you kind of give us a short view of what's what would be a media op? So, um, as as they've um, they, they've gained quite a bit of control. Um, over our media uh, without even having to, uh, to to do it in the name of, of the U.S. government. Of course, they can they can do it through private uh, corporations um, with which they're they're working uh, very closely. Uh, so you know, somebody like Fox News is going to um, is going to you know have be there ready to take pictures of the kids throwing rocks, um, whether or not uh, they're they're sent there directly by the U.S. government or not. Uh, they they're they're ready to do it at you know at, at the bidding of um of their That's employers. But an interesting yeah. point to try to get out here too is people want to portray this as you could never have this big with conspiracy. Um, right. The the conspiracy is self driving. I mean that's it's what it's designed for. Uh, once that's you right. set this machinery in place, uh it's a go. That's um, right. I would I would hesitate to even call it a conspiracy because it's really 
the normal operations of uh, of our security and intelligence apparatus um, are, are, are you know would explain this. It's not it, you don't need uh, to to have a, a, a huddle in a back room with people twirling their mustaches for this to work. Um, you know it can it can just happen because it's set up uh, to happen that way. Again, Doug Valentine points out that that this was created during the Vietnam War, the Phoenix program, uh, modeled after Ford. Uh, Ford Motor Company used a command post, quote-unquote, system where they would have directives from on high, and then they had uh, computerized statistics uh, that would tell them whether or not they were meeting their goals or not. And that sounds, again, that's what it was modeled on, so that's why you see the similarity. similarity. That's right. That's right. Um, so on the other side of the box, uh First off, do you think there's a reason why they've got these three things kind of set? They've got three counters on the other side of the information box, counter-ideology, counter-sanctuary, counter-motivation. Again, they're all interlinked, but can you kind of give us a what's in each of those? Sure. Uh, so uh, counter-motivation um, is basically denying people. This is a, a sort of way of um, making it, Irrational uh, for people to uh, to participate. Um, that is raising the cost to such a to such a high level, such a high cost for for people to participate um, in in a protest or uh, a nonviolent insurgency. Let's say um, the counter motivation um, is is basically um, basically making it so that it's it's um, almost impossible uh, for for uh, people's motivation to. to Outweigh those costs, right? Um, so to give people a disincentive uh, to do anything, really, to, to go out of their homes, um, this um, this can be reinforced by by uh, by the security pillar. Uh, as you saw when the national guard was out there enforcing the curfew, um, but it also it also can take the form of psychological warfare, right? Where you're um, the, the kind of thing where you're you're saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna expel all these high school students. Uh, we're going to get all these high school students expelled for, uh, you know, exercising their rights or going out and protesting. Um, so that's a way of, of, of countering the motivation that people have to participate. Uh, counter ideology um, is is uh, equally important. Uh, this is um, so it was designed as a during the Cold War when you know they they actually had this war on communism. Now they they don't have the same kind of um, ideological. Uh, singular ideological enemy, uh, but uh, they they have uh, seen fit to um, to uh, use propaganda and use um, sort of denunciations of uh, of uh, the ideas that uh, that that people might have who are out in the streets. Uh, so you've seen this uh, in Occupy and more recently um, in the treatment of of anarchism or anarchists. Right, uh, you've seen this um, in in uh, treatment of the Black Lives Matter protests as a sort of inherently violent uh, ideology um, and uh, attempts to, to really um, deprive uh, social movements of, of uh, their base in the population um, by, by saying, well, this is, this is a foreign ideology, this is a hostile ideology, this is a violent um, way of thinking. Um, and uh, the counter-sanctuary piece, of course, is, is to deny them um, uh, places to go, right, space uh, to, to, to be and to... to uh, the, just the space to operate in, um, and uh, this can uh, take the form of, um, as we saw in Ferguson with the church uh, denying them physical space. It can also deny them. You can also deny them their their space in cyberspace. Um, increasingly, mm, that, is, that is the the, the technology the technologies that are available to them. Um, they're using to uh, to deny uh, people even their their ability to to operate and to to uh, communicate in cyberspace. So we've we've got these six things, and again, that you've really given a, a clear picture of how they're all interlinked. They're not each one. I guess their term is stovepipe. Uh, each is interlinked and, and interwoven with all the other pieces. Um, but I guess what a lot of what appears to be random uh, may not be what it appears to be at all, and I guess that might be a pretty good way of saying that's what information control is all about, I guess. That's right. That's right. Um, one, one of the most interesting things to all of this, though, is uh, what we've... Kilcullen uh, basically was credited 
uh, as doing such a good job in Iraq with uh, this version of uh, of coin uh, that that they came with the idea of, uh, according to Valentine, have a worldwide Phoenix program. Uh, at the same That's time, right. we've we've got the person who was the ambassador of Iraq, who just now came out with the article saying, "Hey, this is doomed to failure. It always fails. It failed in Vietnam. It failed in." Iraq, it failed in Afghanistan, That's it right. failed in fill in the blank. Um, That's right. So it's not like this is some kind of um, perfectly created machine that's going to win. In fact, it's doomed to fail. Uh, so I kind of guess that brings us to our, <clears throat> our, our third section here is, uh, with all of this gloom and doom, what do you see as the good news as being able to identify, hey, we're having counterintuitive counterinsurgency used on us. Um, what's the good news here? We've got well, about 20 I mean, minutes to look for the <laughs> look for the pony in the box full of food here. <laughs> well, uh, you certainly um, you certainly touched on it. Uh, one one piece of good news is that um, you know the, the, there's no uh, there's no success here uh, for a counterinsurgency campaign. There there can be uh, temporary uh, wins. There can be uh, pacification. Um, they can um, disrupt and deter people for a time uh, from from uh, going to the street or, or taking part in protests. Um, all that you know that that can look like success, um, but really in the long term, it's 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 inevitable. Um, it's doomed to fail, as you said, and it's inevitable that um, a population will not um, respond to this by uh, embracing uh, those it sees as occupiers, those it sees as an occupying force. Um, as you said, you didn't, you didn't see that in Vietnam, you didn't see it in Iraq or Afghanistan, you're certainly not going to see it um, here in the United States, I think, where people have uh, higher expectations of some basic degree of, uh, of democratic legitimacy. So once they have access to uh, this information, once the information control is broken, um, then uh, the other pillars are, are much more likely to fall. Um, we have a crisis of legitimacy in this country right now, and, and part of that is flowing from the fact that, uh, as never before, uh, we're seeing what's going on. We have we have access uh, through some of the the new tools that um, that we were talking about um, to uh, to to unprecedented information on on uh, the kinds of um, the kinds of activities that um, our our government is engaged in. Uh, of course, there's much more that we don't know that that is going on. But um, the information control, I think, is 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 much more. Uh, tenuous than than it used to be, uh, as is the uh, the control over um, the population in the sense of legitimacy, because um, they they have power, but they don't have the kind of legitimacy that they used to have um, in carrying out these operations. You're not just talking about um, you know fighting a, a foreign enemy anymore. You're talking about uh, targeting civilians, targeting citizens. Um, so I, I think that that sounds very dire and it sounds very doomsday, but there is a, a silver lining to it in that. Um, people, I think, generally are uh, are waking up to this, and uh, there there have been successful attempts to uh, contain the uh, the growth of the security state. There have been successful attempts to uh, to rein in some of these programs that we're talking about. Some states, um, some that you wouldn't even expect, like Montana, have have passed legislation saying uh, they don't want the 1033 program, that is the uh, the program to to funnel surplus military equipment to local law enforcement. You've had uh, states in like Washington State uh, where they um, there were drones that were going to be introduced uh, to police protests there, and, and they said no, we're not going to have drones um, policing our protests. There have been efforts um, in New York City and elsewhere, um, and, and uh, I think we're we're seeing a, a real conflict over this now um, in New York City and, and, and elsewhere to to uh, to stop um, the uh, the policing over policing of protest uh you know and, and to actually bring um, to to bring uh, uh civil and criminal complaints against the police department um and in the case of Chicago you've even seen reparations that were won for uh for uh domestic dissidents and other prisoners who were tortured in in previous decades um and that was uh the of course Chicago was where we saw that black site during uh the 2012 protests um so this this stuff is still going on but there is there there are real uh local wins uh that i think can can people can take heart that you know it is possible to to put the brakes on this thing um at least at the local level 
um, and and if this crisis of legitimacy continues, then I think we're we're going to see some developments, some new developments in reining this in on the national level as well. We've got about 14 minutes left, and one of the most crucial things I've seen as far as good news was just how much uh, airtime you seem to have gotten with the counterinsurgency. Uh, you were talking to the Nation magazine. The corporate media has actually been paying attention here, and to me, that's a big change. What do you see as having driven what's going on here? Why is the corporate media suddenly doing their job? Well, um, I think uh, it's it's not that they're suddenly doing their job, but they don't really have a choice. This is something that everybody is talking about. It's something everybody cares about. Um, everybody who, who knows about this, who, who learns about this, realizes that this is um, an issue of, of the utmost um, importance to their lives, whether or not they're um, actively politically active or they're you know, actually out there protesting. This is something that's going to affect all of us. It's going to affect our children, um, our grandchildren, and so on. So I think that um, there's there's simply a demand for it uh, that that there hasn't been in some time for 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 information. There's a hunger uh, for information about this and for some sort of analysis of what's going on. Um, and and I think people feel shortchanged, um, you know, by by the the information that they had been getting previously, um, <laughs> and they're demanding to know more. <laughs> I, I, I keep thinking back to the scenes in Baltimore, where and Ferguson, where you've got people telling corporate media, uh, go home. And, and, and basically, if you're following it on Twitter and seeing what the people who actually live there are saying and seeing compared with what's going out on CNN uh, That's right. or some of the other corporate media, I don't want to just single out their bad behavior. Uh, <laughs> there's plenty to go around in corporate. Did you pick up any kind of a change when you're talking to corporate people who are suddenly covering this story? Um, do you see any kind of... Uh, how do they seem to you? Do they actually seem to be understanding, or did they get it before and just paid not to? Or what? What's your impression from talking to the corporate media? What do you see changing there? Um, so my sense is that uh, nothing fundamental has changed um, <laughs> in the corporate media. But, um, I was we, really hoping you'd have some better news than that. <laughs> well, nothing fundamental, but I think at, at the margins, at the at the edges, you're seeing some some shifts, and I think. Um, you know, one of the things that they did during Occupy uh, was actually um, even the corporate media became a threat because um, to, to have a camera on what was going on, to have uh, people covering what was going on, even that was perceived as a threat. Even if it was CNN, even if it was the New York Times, they were you know beating up. I was I was out there with a camera at the front lines um, in 2011. They were they were beating up anybody, um, including you know mainstream corporate journalists. So I think some of the people. Um, some of the individuals in, in the media have changed uh, their view and uh, feel that this is a threat um, not just to, uh, to protesters but also to them and, and they're exercising uh, their rights as, as uh, members of the press and so-called free press. Uh, there, there are many people who are sort of questioning what, uh, what legitimacy these, these kinds of tactics have, what kinds of the kinds of tactics that we've seen in the streets. Um, and I think um, as, as individuals, they're covering it differently. Um, as institutions, I think it's going to take more for them to change um, in a more fundamental way. And, um, you know, for that, you're going to have to talk about um, new media. You're going to have to talk about um, sort of democratizing our media um, on a more systematic level. Um, but, you know, for now, I think there is a cultural shift. Um, there's a shift in the discourse, a shift in uh, the way that people are talking about these things. Um, and uh, there's, there's a sense uh, among many of the population that, you know, if, if the corporate media isn't here to tell us the truth, uh, we're going to need some, someone else to do that. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's an existential crisis for them because uh, it really gets down to the, the, the role of the media in a free society. And if this isn't a free society, then what is the role of the media then? Hmm. Good point. Uh, got about 10 minutes left, and you've really kind of touched on some interesting points. Uh, for those of us who've been around Occupy from basically day one, uh, the issues that we're raising today aren't exactly news to us. Um, basically, we had in the former show with Doug Valentine, uh, to a degree, uh, this is what drove Occupy Underground, although that has been overblown according to some of the other experts we've been talking to. Uh, but it is breaking down. Uh, the media is beginning to have to cover this. Um, you, you were there at the original 
Were you there at uh, at Occupy Wall Street in New York? You go That's all right. the way back to the very beginnings here, basically. September seventeenth, two thousand eleven. Yep. That would that would be. I'm I'm a newcomer. I didn't come in until about October. Uh, huh. <laughs> that, when the rest of the country you. started <laughs> going up for grabs, uh, yeah. but that was an yeah. interesting point in time. Uh, we're was. still seeing people. Uh, are you following uh, decentralized uh, Occupy uh, from yes. down in New yes. Zealand? Um, yeah. She's one of the people who has, has basically was never a journalist, never in her wildest dreams even wanted to be a journalist. But she is a reporter because she saw that it wasn't being covered anywhere else. Um, okay. You've uh, you were at the Battle of Boston. I guess that was a couple months after September. Was that December? No, it was in uh, there, there were several. There were several, but yeah, there was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the ongoing. Yeah, yeah, and the Battle of Chicago, of course, in, in May 2012 was. Um, was uh, was really uh, you know one of the places where where we saw some of this new um, this new type of policing uh, really deployed in, in full force uh, was at the North American Treaty Organization protests the anti-war protests that spring um, but you know we saw from from the first I think um, you know they've had this stuff um, under development and, and they've had it um, in the wings um and uh, a lot of a lot of the uh, infrastructure I was talking about and the, uh, the tactics and the weapons I was talking about um they were they were out there on the streets they didn't use them to the same extent that they that they have um in the past year but uh they had the sound cannons the long range acoustic devices they had yeah. the, the less lethal weapons and all that um the uh the all the cameras uh you know that that they have um that that they were integrating to uh to to try to surveil what Occupy was doing. I think, you know, the, the groundwork had been laid, uh, of course, long ago, and uh, we're just starting to see um, the full uh, glory now. All right. I, the, the, the credibility is beginning to uh, switch to our side since the other side has been caught lying, the corporate That's side, right. so right. many times. Uh, you, we, we talked right before we started recording um, a lot of the protesters that were arrested in the Battle of Chicago actually went to the black site that's just now been brought up into uh, mainstream news and reparations even. Um, that's, right. that's that same site, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so the black site um, had been used for many years uh, uh, to, to take uh, prisoners of various sorts that, that the Chicago Police Department didn't want uh, to, uh, didn't, didn't have the... Um, the uh, the goods on uh, yet so they didn't they didn't have the, the means to, to bring them up on normal charges and they would take them to this um, warehouse in Holman Square um, and they you know in the case of the uh, the Chicago protesters uh, you know had them chained to a bench in a, in a wire cage um, and um, they uh, apparently uh, ended up charging them with uh, three of them with domestic terrorism after. Um, they uh, sent their own agents to set up this elaborate plot um, involving uh, uh, Molotov cocktails and, and all this. It was an elaborate act of entrapment uh, that, that they used to set up some of these protesters uh, who, who didn't know any better, didn't know who they were dealing with. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases you're seeing um, the counterterrorism uh, campaign is, is kind of having to invent terrorism uh, or, or, or you know terrorist plots uh, for to justify its own existence, and Chicago is one example of that. Um, Baltimore may well turn into yeah. another one once we actually that's see right. what really happened that day. Uh, to, that's to, right. That, I wouldn't be surprised to see those black sites popping up in Baltimore either. I get the impression you're probably dead on target on that one too. In fact, what's really interesting is when we were talking about this in Ferguson we found not one but two fusion centers operating in Ferguson, population 20,000 people. Okay. Uh, there's The numbers I keep seeing, uh, it varies all the time. I, I don't think there even is a clear picture of how many fusion centers are operating at this point. In uh, that number doesn't seem to be very realistic. Uh, right. We have about five minutes left to go. Uh, there was something else I wanted to touch on, and I think I managed to forget it. Was there? <laughs> there was one I was wanting you to remind me of. Did I? And I, I knew I'd space out and forget it. Well, I know we were supposed to talk about the, um, the Chicago. Uh, oh, that's it. And InfraGuard. 
you you're, yeah, you're yeah. I was hoping you've got some infraguard because that's the side of the fusion centers that's really spooky. Uh yeah. We're not yeah. seeing much on infraguard. Um, that's right. Um and and this is actually just one piece of, of a larger puzzle, uh which is the private the public private partnership. Uh right. You know, for for uh, policing and for homeland security, um, Infraguard is is just the, the the link in that chain that um, the FBI is is specifically responsible for. So they um, they have over fifty five thousand uh, members as of twenty twelve. I'm sure it's much uh, it's grown since then. Um, but uh, it's it's an association of um, of uh, U.S. businesses, U.S. corporations, um, and the FBI to combine uh, to, to put their minds together, basically, to combine um, uh, information sharing and intelligence functions uh, with uh, sort of coordination um, and uh, collaboration on, on efforts to prevent uh, disruption and uh, ensure business continuity, as they call it. Um, <laughs> but that can mean anything from, uh, you know, uh, disruption can mean anything from an Occupy protest to a, a terrorist event, but, you know, they don't make any distinction. So they've been, uh, they've been using InfraGuard, they've been using... Um, other uh, councils like the Domestic Security Alliance Council um, and uh, some of these advisory councils in, within the DHS, um, the Homeland Security Information Network is another one, like InfraGuard, uh, that DHS is, is, um, is anchoring, that uh, allow constant uh, communication uh, and uh, coordination of, uh, of public and private sectors uh, to, to respond to what they see as um, the threat environment that they face, as they call it. Um, but the threat environment makes no distinction, like I said, between nonviolent and violent activities. So you're seeing the use of, of you know, these, um, these networks and uh, um, organizations that were developed um, under the pretext of uh, protecting Americans actually being turned against them. And again, Doug Ballantyne's observation here is that basically parallels how the Phoenix program worked out in the in the 60s and 70s, the Vietnam War version. Um, it's, a, it's a pattern that just keeps repeating until we make it stop repeating, but the, the biggest difference is very few people knew about what Phoenix program was in 1973 or 74. Um, I think there's a significant larger amount of people who are beginning to get a handle on just how bad this situation is uh, as far as liberty. It's interesting to see some of the tweets talking about the left wing is on this one, but they're divided from the right wing. Keeps, uh, there's been a lot of observations about <laughs> where's the right wing on this one? Where's all the liberty people? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and another classic example of that would be the Bundy Ranch situation, where the right people, right. right wing, were there. Uh, police militarization, uh, but the left wing wasn't too much on showing up for that one. That's um, right. The 99%, do you have any uh, in the last minute? Um, how do we get the 99% to hang together so do we don't all hang separately? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, the million-dollar question. But, um, <laughs> trillion, probably. Probably trillion or two, yeah. But um, I would say that, you know, the uh, there there are some things that, uh, that still uh, unite us. Um, you know, no matter what uh, the political ideology that might motivate us might be, um, one of the things is a desire to uh, to live our lives uh, free from um, constant uh, government surveillance and, and uh, uh, constant uh, government interference and, and um, control of, of of what we do. Um, you know, there's there's one kind of freedom that um, I think the right um, takes for granted there, and, and you know, thinks it's fighting for. Um, the freedoms of, of businesses to, to do what they want, but you know, what, what about the freedoms of, of individuals? What about the freedoms of, uh, of of communities like those in Baltimore to to just live their lives? I mean, that's that's something very basic, right? That's written into our, um, our constitutional laws. It's, it's uh, supposed to be uh, guaranteed to us. Um, but I think this is this is one thing that that the right and the left have uh, you know have in common is is uh, nobody wants to be uh, followed around twenty four seven. And uh, be the target of, of uh, information ops or, or psychological warfare on their own um, on their own block or, or in their own country. Um, and uh, that's true of Iraqis, that's true of Afghans, and it's definitely true of Americans. Um, so I think that 
you know, if, if, if there's one thing that's going to, uh, that's going to unite us, uh, I think, in these, uh, these final years of the Obama administration, it's, it's uh, this realization that, um, that uh, our democracy is under threat, our freedoms are under threat, and uh, it's going to take uh, collective action and, and uh, some serious uh, pushback to stop it. Well, that pushback is underway, and uh, I, I can't think of a better way to end this show out. That pretty much says it all. I want to thank you for being with us. You've done a great job of trying to make a really complex situation by design a lot clearer for us. Uh, hopefully Thanks we can so get much. you back. Uh, and, and any last thought? Well, uh, just, uh, you know, information is, is power, whether it's, uh, <laughs> whether it's uh, in the hands of the power players or in the hands of the rest of us. So the more information we have, uh, the, more, the, more, uh, the better equipped we're going to be uh, to you know, to wage this fight for our freedom. So uh, everybody should be doing this work. This is work that, that everybody can be doing. Um, you know, just, uh, uh, just you know, keep an eye out because uh, they certainly are. <laughs> Michael, thanks for standing. Uh, for our audience, thank you for standing and for listening. And uh, if we don't get blown out of the air again, we'll be back here in another week or so with another story. Uh, Till then, thank you for being with us. And uh Thanks for standing. Bye-bye. Thanks again, Terry. Bye-bye.